a Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O oh, righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out. He falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. This is the word of the Lord. You might think that someone who was so convinced of his own innocence would be defensive when dealing with others. When it says that this is a shigeon or a lament of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite, uh, this ties us back into the whole story of Absalom and Absalom's rebellion. How did David handle himself with those who were opposing him in, in that day? When Shimei, in Second Samuel 16, a, a Benjaminite, so this may have something to do with the psalm, when he curses David and throws rocks at him as David is fleeing from Absalom, how did David respond? David says, If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite... Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Notice David's response. If I am innocent, then God will vindicate me. It's not my job to vindicate myself. Now, this is David, the king. If anybody's job... Uh, no, 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 David's... No. It's not my job to vindicate myself. As we look at this theme of refuge during Advent, we're looking at these five psalms from Psalms 3 through 7 that explore the theme of refuge. We saw this in, in Psalm 1 with, with David, is the, the, the blessed man, singing of the one, blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And then in Psalm 2, we saw the Messiah, the anointed king, as is the Son of God, the one in whom we must take refuge if we wish, wish to be blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
And then these next five psalms explore what it means to take refuge in Him. And so in Advent, we're looking at these psalms of refuge. And we've been looking particularly at the themes of complaint and lament because, well, complaint and lament are what taking refuge... Why are you taking refuge? (laughs) There's a problem! What do you do in times of trouble? Bring your complaint to the Lord. Bring your lament to the Lord. When you're innocent... It's not your job to vindicate yourself. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from my pursuers and deliver me. Our New Testament lesson comes from Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, hear now the word of the Lord, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. If you recall from our readings in Luke's Luke's Gospel over the last few weeks, Mary is said to be a relative of Elizabeth, who was the wife of Zechariah, and we're told that both Elizabeth and Zechariah were Levites. So if Mary is a relative of Elizabeth's, we know that at least she's got some Levite connection. Is she also from the tribe of Judah? Maybe, but we're not told. What we do know is that Joseph is a son of David. Now, there are two genealogies in the Gospels. Uh, The one in Luke seems to trace the biological descent from father to son. The one here in the first chapter of Matthew clearly shows the line of kings, which suggests that this is the way in which Joseph could trace his claim to the throne of Jerusalem. And that's part of why I never tire of showing how this, this, the central point in Matthew's story is the importance of adoption. You find people saying sometimes that uh, Joseph probably assumed that Mary had been unfaithful and that's why she's pregnant. Where does the text say that? The text says that when she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, it never says that Joseph didn't believe her. In, in fact, we're told he's a just man. And as a just man, if your fiance tells you, uh, yeah, an angel came and told me I was going to, get pregnant because God was going to do this miraculously. Being a just man, he would have believed his fiancée. And she's, she's now found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And he's like, okay, obviously God has claimed her for his own. I should get out of the way. That's that Being a just man, that's what a just man would do. It's like, I, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I mean, There's been a lot of discussion over the centuries as to whether Mary and Joseph ever had sexual relations after this. 
And a lot of modern people just assume, of course they would have. I'm sorry, if you just think about it for a moment, God was there, the eternal Son of God, and I'm going to go where God, I'm sorry, I I think I can make this, I can do this. That's just, I I don't know, Scripture never says, so I'm not, uh, but I can totally understand why Joseph being a just man would say, I, I understand. And this is, but this is where this, but Joseph is not some sort of irrelevant castaway in the story of Jesus. Because if Joseph doesn't take Mary as his wife, then Jesus will never be called the son of David. Because Jesus won't be the son of David. Scripture never says Mary is descended from David. Scripture says Joseph is descended from David. And Joseph is the one, and that's why the angel comes to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, hint, hint, here's why you're important. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save their people from their sins. This, the whole point of what Jesus is called to do can only happen if Joseph takes Mary as his wife so that Jesus can properly be said to be the son of David. This is part of why the Psalms are so fitting during Advent. Because as the son of David, Jesus takes these songs onto his own lips. He is, very rightly, the first person singular of the Psalms. And so when we come to Psalm 7, we see how it, there's a very real way in which what, what David is saying in these psalms is, is ultimately taken up by the, by the voice of our Lord Jesus as the one who... Sure, David was innocent in the particular case where he is claiming, I don't deserve this. But Jesus is the one who will be innocent of all that is done to him. And it's, only, and it's in him, as we see his righteousness clearly, that we see how we can sing this psalm in and with Jesus. It's titled a, a Shigion of David. Uh, that word is only used here and in the preface to the song in Habakkuk 3. Which, it comes from a root meaning to wander or stray and seems clearly connected to the idea of lament that when I'm, when I'm wandering, when I'm, when I'm straying, when I'm out and I need rescue, I need refuge, help. And this is a lament which David sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, there's no one named Cush in the story of David, although there are two people with very similar names, Hushai, the archite, David's friend, and then the Cushite who is sent to tell David that Absalom is dead. Uh, so, but whether the Cush of Psalm 7 is Hushai or the Cushite or someone else entirely, it is given to us in this context of David as he's pursued by his enemies. So what should you do when you are innocent? What should you do when your enemies are pursuing you and you're like, I, I didn't do it. I'm not, I, I'm not guilty. And the first thing is obvious. Flee to God for refuge. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Now, notice the image that David uses. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Now, 
Notice that this is, a, this is a lion tearing apart your soul. So, imagine, it's scary enough to have a lion tearing apart your body. You know, you, you're, out, you're out there and you've got a lion and you're like, okay, it's, 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 it's the lion against me who's going to win. But this is a lion that doesn't just tear apart your body. This is a lion that tears apart your soul. Actually, I know. All you Narnia fans are immediately going to Eustace in the, in the, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader and Aslan sort of tearing his soul apart in order to heal him. Because the, the problem is, our souls are disintegrating. And part of where this comes from, I mean, my enemies, and don't just think about, I mean, sure, in David's case, he's probably thinking about actual conflict going on with people around him, but there's also all the conflict of the world, the flesh, the devil, everything that comes in and besieges me, tearing my soul apart with none to deliver. As one writer put it, I have no warmth, no light, nowhere to turn, no home, no friends, and now my last ray of hope is extinguished. Lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. You are the refuge of my soul when all the forces around me are tearing me apart. This theme of refuge, as we've seen, is one of the most prominent themes here at the beginning of book one of the Psalms. And when you're being chased by lions, when you're hounded by bullies, when you're abused and slandered, the first thing you do, the first thing you must do, is flee to the Lord. Oh Lord, my God. How precious a thing it is to say. Oh Lord, my God. Lord, you are my God. You are my refuge. You are the only one I can turn to. So, the first thing you do is cry out to God. Now, you're not surprised to hear me say that. I'm a pastor. So what's the second thing we're supposed to do? All right. Second thing you're supposed to do? Cry out to God. So, the first time you cry out to Him as your refuge and salvation. But now the second time, verses 3 to 5... What does David do for the... Okay, he's, he, he's cried out to God. He's got God as his refuge. Now he's going to... No, no, no. He's going to... He's, he's, turns right back to God. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if I am guilty, then fine. Let them destroy me. It's, it's what's called a, a self-maledictory oath. Uh, malediction means evil speaking. So a self-malediction means speaking evil words against yourself. The, the basic idea of a self-maledictory oath is you're basically calling down curses on yourself if, you, if, if, if you're guilty. And verses, the, the form in verses 3 through 5 is a very standard oath form that you see throughout the scriptures. Uh, if so-and-so has done such-and-such, then let so, thus-and-such happen to so-and-so. Uh, that's... That's the form of malediction takes. And so when you're calling it on yourself, you say, if I have done this, then let all these bad things happen to me. Did you know that God in the scriptures will often take self-maledictory oaths? Actually, the, the first time he does it is actually in, in, the, very, in, in the story of Abraham when, when it, he does it symbolically, when the animals are, are cut in half and... and, and Abraham's waiting for God to come along so God and Abraham can walk in between. The, the, the picture being, 
may I be cut in half if I don't fulfill my words? And so then God comes along and in, in, a, in a vision, basically puts Abraham to sleep and says, no, 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 you're not doing this. I'm doing this by myself. I'm going to walk in between the pieces of the animal. May I, God, be cut in half if I do not do what I say. Basically, what God's saying is, may I cease to be God if I do not do what I promise. And quite frankly, if God ever failed to keep his promises, then he would cease to be God. And here, the psalmist proclaims a curse upon himself if he is guilty. If I am guilty, if I have done evil to the one who was at peace with me, then let the enemy destroy me. This is a terrible curse. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. If I am guilty, let the lions win. Let them tear my soul in pieces. Because David understands that to take refuge in the Lord is to seek justice from him. David's not saying, I've never sinned, I've never done anything wrong. Everyone knows David sinned. He's famous for his sins. Rather, David's point is, if I have done this, if I have done this particular thing that I've been accused of, if I'm wrong in this case, then let him trample my life to the ground. The self-maledictory oath is designed to vindicate the innocent. The whole idea is that you are calling down death and hell upon yourself if you're guilty. In other words, you really shouldn't do this unless you're really innocent. I mean, maybe you've heard children on the playground say something like, cross my heart and hope to die. You, you do realize that's a self-maledictory oath. The, the child is saying that if they're lying, they want God to strike them dead on the spot. Now, when we grow up, we don't usually use that phrase. We might say, oh, I'm telling the truth, I swear to God. It's the same thing. It's a self-maledictory oath. Calling God as witness that you are speaking the truth and therefore calling God to judge you if you're not. That's, we need to be really slow and very deliberate in taking such oaths. This is why Jesus warns us against rash oaths. When he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, Jesus is not saying that David was wrong for taking a self-maledictory oath. Rather, Jesus is saying that you need to mean whatever you say. You should be a person characterized by truth in your ordinary language so that if you take a self-maledictory oath, be prepared to stand before God's judgment and answer for it because at the final judgment, we will answer for every careless word. So we should see in verses 1 through 5 these two things that we should do when we're innocent. First, cry out to God for refuge. And then second, cry out to God for vindication. So when do I get to defend myself? Nope. That's not what you're doing here. I'm not saying there's never a time to do that. I'm saying, how should you be thinking about your situation? I cry out to God. There may be an appropriate moment, and that's where there are times when, yes, clear, clearing your name can be important, but when you look at how David sets up Psalm 7, he's saying, when you're in trouble, we are all too, too quick to defend ourselves and vindicate ourselves. We need to go to God and say, God, this is your job to vindicate me. Please deliver me. And that's then 
in what we see in verses 6 and following is what should God do when you are innocent? And first, David asks God to arise. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. Arise and return. Now, arise, O Lord, is the ancient war cry from the wilderness. Every time Moses would lead Israel to set out from camp, he would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. That's what David's paraphrasing here. And then, when they came to their next resting place, when the ark would come to its rest, Moses would say, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. David is reflecting on Moses and reflecting on what it meant for God to dwell in the midst of his people. And he's saying, Arise, O Lord, defeat your enemies, and then return and gather and and judge and protect your people. Last week, we heard, Turn, O Lord, in Psalm 6, verse 4. It's the same word as return, turn and return. If God does not turn, if things continue as they are, we're in trouble. And this week we hear, Arise, O Lord, which also was used in Psalm 3. And, and here there, this language of Arise, O Lord, Turn, O Lord, Return, O Lord, is all, all these complaints and laments at the beginning of the Psalms are pleas for God to arise and do something, return and make things right. Because when God is seated on His heavenly throne for judgment, that is when His people may find justice before Him. The picture here is that, that the Lord is enthroned. I mean, this is actually it's the same vision that Isaiah will see years later. God is seated in the heavenly court with, with all the assembly of the peoples before him. There's a way in which David is picturing this. It's a picture of the final judgment. The last day when you have appointed judgment. Now, as a picture of the final judgment, he's not, he's not saying, oh, someday at the end of history, finally you'll deal with this. He's actually saying, but please give us a picture of that now. Show us, show us your presence now. All throughout history, there are lots of pictures of the final judgment. Often when you see a a sort of a a major disaster hit a a town or or a country, that's a picture of the final judgment. It's obviously not the final judgment itself, but it's a picture reminding us, oh right, there is a, a judgment coming. And so in this age, we don't see perfect justice, but from time to time we see an approximation of that justice. Indeed, when David sat on the throne in Jerusalem, he was a picture of God's justice. But then when Absalom and Ahithophel drove him out, that picture was cast down and trampled in the dust. And so David asks God to judge him according to my righteousness. Now, what does David mean by according to my righteousness? You're not going to get sinlessness out of this because uh, (laughs) David's not sinless and that's really obvious. What does he mean by my righteousness? Some have tried to say that it's, it's, oh, it's just talking about that he's right in this particular case. That doesn't quite work. 
understanding David's righteousness as because I've sometimes I've sometimes pointed out that when you talk when the scripture talks about justice and righteousness in the same compass I mean, the two words are almost synonymous but when they go together there's oftentimes a distinction between justice being do you decide particular cases correctly and righteousness being do you set up the picture that you set up the society the community in a right way so that the justice being the particular righteousness being the more general term so when david talks about his righteousness he's he's not just talking about sort of i'm right in this particular case but that as the king as the son of god as the one who is called to be a picture of god's righteous rule in in judah in israel david is called to be that for israel now of course david's problem is he fails he falls short this is why we really 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 need jesus because things keep falling apart every time we have a son of david who is not in fact perfectly righteous himself but his righteousness is not just talking about i'm right in this particular case but i'm i'm the anointed king i mean think back think back to why was it that david would never overthrow saul well, he's the lord's anointed i will not lift my hand against the lord's anointed david understood the king i mean even though saul had failed and god had already said i'm going to remove saul and david's already been anointed david's already received the spirit so in one sense if anybody could have said i have a right to rebel against the king and overthrow him it would have been david but david says no this is god's job not mine and so i will wait i will take refuge in the lord actually there will be many psalms that reflect on david's experience in this so that's partly why we need to be careful when, because when when he says in verse 8 the lord judges the people's judge me o lord according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me we need to be careful that we take this not as a statement regarding david's sort of perfectness he wasn't and and but rather as his this is his position as king he's who this is what it what should be and indeed only is fully in jesus and that's why jesus is the one who can sing this with a clear conscience at all times and the rest of us appeal to him for a clear clean conscience and seek to repent of our sin and turn away from our failures to be like this and this is but this is where we need to be a little bit suspicious of the the cynicism of the modern temper because our day we have a very deep suspicion of anyone who claims to be righteous oh it's really all about power isn't it and it's easy to judge david by that hermeneutic of suspicion I mean, you see this all the time in people when they talk about divorce when you hear about so and so got divorced there's usually somebody in the room who will say ah oh, but it takes two to tango as though both parties were equally at fault but psalm 7 tells us that's not the way you should think David says judge me according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me there there is a sense in which there there can be a right and a wrong there could be a guilty and an innocent and that's actually an important way of talking and notice the way that 
the way that then verses 9 through 11 develop this theme of David's righteousness. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God is a righteous judge. He tests minds and hearts, or or as the Hebrew would put it, the hearts and the kidneys. In in English, we, we think with our minds and we feel with our hearts. In Hebrew, you think with your hearts and you feel with your kidneys. Uh, People sometimes say, oh, there's no word for mind in Hebrew. Well, that's actually not true. It's the word heart. There's actually, you could, I mean, you could argue, you could say, well, we have no, we have no word for kidneys in English because who among you thinks with your, uh, feels with your kidneys? Um, (laughs) But it's the, it, it, Jeremiah tells us that the, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the mind and try the heart. Same phrase as in Psalm 7. I search the heart and try the kidneys. You're, you're not competent to judge your own mind and heart. It's so easy to get caught up in second-guessing your own motives. But that's where David said, I'm, I'm not competent to judge myself. And I'm not called to judge myself. I'm called to love God and love my neighbor. God is the righteous judge, and he will try. He will deal with uh, testing the minds and hearts, the hearts and kidneys, in order to show what, in fact, is true. In a world filled with deceptive advertising, in, in a culture where truth has perished, God alone can vindicate the upright of heart. And... And that's also where, as you look at these verses, you can see that we're we're talking about more than just, in this instance, I'm innocent. David is talking about how God will establish the righteous and bring an end to the wicked. God will, will vindicate those who seek to organize their communities well and will overthrow those who destroy their communities through wickedness. So when David says, "'Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness,' What righteousness is he appealing to? Well, he's the son of God. It's the message that we heard in Psalm 2 a few weeks ago that David was called to be the the son of God. God has set his son, his anointed one, his Messiah on his throne. In fact, next week in Psalm 8, we'll hear about how this is, how, how the son of man and the son of David come together in our Lord Jesus Christ. But God is a righteous judge. And if if he has declared you now in Christ to be his son and heir, then you may flee to God and say, Vindicate me, Father. Because you have made me your child, because you have declared me righteous in Christ, vindicate me, deliver me from my enemies. Deliver me from the world, the flesh, and the devil that seek to tear my soul apart. Because even think about David. What was there in David that, that... made him deserve the throne. He was the youngest son of Jesse. David was a shepherd boy. And yet, God raised him up to be king over all Israel. It is all the work of God's grace. David is not saying, I've been so good and righteous in myself that you owe it to me, God. 
No, he comes to God as a son to his father and pleads, save me from my enemies. And because God has saved Jesus, because God has delivered Jesus from death and raised him up to eternal life, therefore God saves those who trust in Jesus, those who are united to him by faith. I've, I've often pointed out that, that if, you, if you've repented of your sin, does God still hold that sin against you? No. So when you come to God saying, I'm innocent, Lord. Now, be careful here. If you haven't repented and you're still doing it, you can't say, I'm innocent, Lord. doesn't work that way. So, but if you have repented, then you can come to God and say, Lord, I'm innocent. Now, the thing is, I know. I... I don't see my own sin nearly so well as I wish I did. Do I really wish I did? I, but, I, but recognizing that it's so easy to be self-deceived. But this is where, as God calls us to come to Him in Jesus, He calls us to come and plead with Him. Because in the process, as we're pleading with Him for vindication, He may very well show us, actually, um, you did that. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. How, how can I make it right? So that's where, don't be afraid to come to God seeking vindication, but also don't be surprised when he shows you, oh, actually, you're not as innocent as you think you are. But because you've come to the God who t- knows the heart, and if you come to the God who knows the heart, he'll he can show you things that you need to see. Because it's also worth saying, as verse 11 does, that God is indignant. He sees the injustice of the wicked, and it really ticks him off. I think sometimes we don't really think of God as being indignant. We look around us, and we, bad stuff, terrible stuff happens all the time. It doesn't look like God's doing anything about it. But notice how God expresses his indignation. How does God bring justice? And here's where we come back to our word turn or return or repent. Because in verse 12, it's the same word again. If a man does not turn, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. Our only hope for salvation is if God turns toward us. Indeed, our turning from sin to God, is based on God turning His face toward us and shining His face upon us. We turn from sin to God because God has first turned toward us and been gracious to us in Jesus. But here's there's another sort of turning because the one who does not return to God, the one who does not repent, will have his own mischief return upon his own head. Because, note, if a man does not turn, if he does not Repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow, and he has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Because if one does not turn back toward God, God is wetting his sword, bending his bow. Sometimes we, we just we want to say, oh, God only does nice things. But God is not only the judge, he's also the executioner. But how does God bring judgment? How does he... We we hear about these arrows as fiery shafts, thunderbolts from heaven. 
But verse 14 describes how God does it. How does God bring judgment? Well, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns. There's our word again. He returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. How does God bring judgment? It sounded at first like it was going to be swords and arrows and firebolts. It's actually through letting their own wickedness fall back upon themselves. This theme of God's poetic justice. The, pr- the process of judgment actually begins in the heart of the wicked themselves. If you conceive evil, then it's not surprising that you are pregnant with mischief and you give birth to lies. Lies are by nature deceptive and they even deceive ourselves. The wicked may not know that he is carrying a lie. Think about Absalom and Ahithophel in the rebellion against David. They may well have thought they were doing the right thing. David has been such a catastrophe, we need to save the house of David from David. So let's remove David from the throne so that Absalom, the son of David, can maintain the honor of the house of David. Ah, see? We are, we are going to bring about the righteousness of God through our own devices. doesn't work that way. When the plan matures and it's time to give birth, what comes out? A lie. Casting out David by rebellion will not bring salvation. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. But my motives were good. I meant well. I always mean well. I can't say always. But over and over again, I mean well. Does it mean that I do the right thing and I say the right thing? No. So often it's like, there's this, ah, oh, I know how to get over here. If I go this way, then we'll get around. What is that? But the very deception and lie that it's not going to work that way. It's why righteousness is so important and why righteousness is so rare. And that's really the point of verses 15 and 16 where we see the, the wicked prepares a trap for himself and falls into the pit that he dug. Sin always destroys itself. It could take a while. It doesn't necessarily happen in a day. It may not even happen in a century. Or, But in the end, sin invariably self-destructs. I mean, you see a beautiful picture of this. Beautiful picture, ugly picture. Uh, in how Satan inspires Judas to betray Jesus to his death. Satan seems very convinced this, that, that this, is, this, this is a good thing for Satan's kingdom. But this is the only thing that can destroy Satan's kingdom. You, you wonder, what, why, would, why would Satan want Judas to betray Jesus so that Jesus would go to his death? Didn't Satan know that this would be the way that his, his kingdom would be overthrown? I don't want to try to get into the mind of Satan. C.S. Lewis, when he was writing the, uh, the screw tape letters, was like, that was not a pleasant experience. <laughs> Trying to get into the mind of devils. Mm, yeah, let's not do that. 
But it's only because Jesus was betrayed that Jesus has triumphed over sin, death, and the devil. The very thing that Satan seeks to accomplish destroys Satan's kingdom. Satan fell into the very pit that he dug for Jesus. And so finally we do come to, the th- there is a third thing that you're supposed to do. So the first thing was cry out to God for deliverance. Second thing, cry out to God for vindication. Third thing, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. Notice, it's his righteousness at the end. My righteousness, David says, was only and ever supposed to be a picture of yours. So I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness because God is the one who has ordered his community and ordered his society in the right way. And so I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. How are we doing in our gratitude? Do you, do you thank God often and regularly? If you are thankful to God for his glorious salvation, make a point of telling him so. If you are grateful for the righteousness that he has made known in Jesus, then yes, sing praises to his name. Gratitude is really important. When, when we see who Christ is and what Christ has done, and when we see ourselves for who we are in him, the only possible response is gratitude. It's why that's where Paul ends in Colossians 3 when he's describing who we are in Christ. He concludes, and be thankful. Because gratitude is... You'll notice, David's not out of the situation yet. In Psalm 7, the enemies are still coming after him. He's still in the middle of his lamenting And yet, he says, I will give thanks to the Lord. He's not just saying, oh, after God delivers me, then I'll give thanks. No. I will give thanks to the Lord, the thanks due to his righteousness right now. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. It's what I'm doing right now, even in my lament. Even when I'm coming to God saying, help, I thank you because you are my refuge. I thank you because you will vindicate me. I thank you because you are the rock of my soul that these lions will never tear apart because you have united me to your son, our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are righteous. And thank you that in your righteousness, you did not leave us in our sin and misery. You did not abandon us to our enemies. But when we were helpless, while we were sinners, you sent your son to die for us, the righteous for the ungodly, that he might bring us to you. Thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you for your abundant mercy. Thank you that you will save the upright in heart for Jesus' sake. Amen.